as a former adjunct faculty for the National University of Nat- National University of Natural Medicine. She has taught courses. Okay, I'm gonna. I will edit all that out. Okay. <laughs> you were great. You were on a roll. I was on a roll and then it got gone. Okay, start over. I love it. Got gone. My name is April. I'm a stage four endo survivor, fertility warrior, and credentialed coach. I know what it's like to have a diagnosis that feels like a lifetime sentence. But honestly, living beyond pain isn't as scary as you may think. If you're looking for cutting edge solutions, fringe answers, and downright practical tips, then you're in the right place. On this podcast, we're going to explore everything from cutting edge research to emerging femtech and sprinkle in a few experts, but mostly share lifestyle tips that work in the real world. It may not feel like it, but the future is bright. And I believe your future is even brighter. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Fem Future Podcast. This is April Summer, forward your host, as always. And today, I'm so excited to have Dr. Carrie Jones with us. For those of you who don't know her, first of all, I don't know how you don't know her, but she is an expert in all things hormones. So we're going to really tackle some of the more nuanced and complex questions around endometriosis and hormones today. And I'm really excited to get into those. Dr. Jones is an international recognized speaker, consultant, and educator. In a recent clubhouse room, I think she was described best as the Oprah of hormones. I'm just going to color that from now on so that you guys know. She's a naturopathic physician who is board certified in naturopathic endocrinology with a master's in public health, having over 15 years in the field of functional and integrative medicine. As a former adjunct faculty for the National University of Natural Medicine, she has taught courses in both gynecology and advanced endocrinology. She has been the medical director for two large integrative clinics in Portland, Oregon, and as I previously stated, is currently the medical director for Precision Analytical, creators of the most cutting-edge hormone test on the market to date, the Dutch test. She's also self-described, I like that you described yourself as this, as a quick-witted, swear-word-loving redhead, which I didn't know you were a redhead, so that's really cool. Natural. I was born with carrot red hair. And you're a Gemini, and you're married to the love of your life, who's a retired officer in the U.S. Army who owns his own business. So those are some things I actually didn't know about you. So welcome so much to the podcast. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me me. I'm really excited to dive in. This is going to be good. Okay. So our goals today, I have a few goals, but the goals are to dispel some hormone myths, which shouldn't be too hard because there's a lot of them. So we'll try to tackle a few of them. And I know we'll meet that goal. My other goal is just to give women a better understanding on their hormone testing options. You are a great educator and you're always talking about this and I'm always talking about this, but still the Dutch test and metabolite testing is still really a new technology and hasn't quite reached mainstream. So first off, just give us a rundown on the Dutch. For me, I've done it several times. So this is really for the new listener who's like, has no idea what we're talking about, but wanted to bring her in the loop and say, what is the Dutch test? What are hormone metabolites? What are we talking about? Absolutely. So the Dutch test, thankfully, is an acronym. We are not testing for Dutch heritage. It stands for Dried Urine Test for Comprehensive Hormones. So it's an at-home test. You basically pee on these little pieces of filter paper four, if not five times throughout the day, let them dry, mail them back to the lab. And the cool thing about them is that we test your basics, your three estrogens, estrone, estradiol, estriol. We check your progesterone. We check your testosterone. We check your uh, DHEAS. So a lot of women might be familiar with these terms, but then we go deeper. And that's what's great about urine is we get to not only look at the hormone, but where are they going? Not all the pathways are that great. You know, Some of the pathways cause serious symptoms, whether it's testosterone going down the pathway that causes hair loss and acne, or estrogen going down the pathway that might cause full tender breasts and heavier periods at at PMS time and in your period, or even a pathway that might increase your risk for DNA damage. And so that's the bonus of doing this metabolite testing is you get the superficial 
And then we get to peel back the onion of the layer and really see what's going on with your hormones. Just to clarify, when I first did it, I thought it was going to be very complex and it was very easy to do the pee test. You know, I took it in a cup, did the samples, let it dry, mailed it away. I was like, well, that was actually really, really simple. I've been on my journey through pretty painful hormone testing where I had to draw like every day. They did blood draws every other day for a whole month one time. And it was like agonizing. I had messed up veins and I was in pain on my arm and it was like, was that even worth it? After looking at what I got from the Dutch test, it was more comprehensive than what those blood tests, you know, gave me. So real quick, just to tease out, because it's interesting, when is it appropriate to do a blood test versus something like the Dutch test? The Dutch test does not cover everything else. We're very specific. We do hormones meaning we do like your ovarian hormones and we do adrenal hormones. So we don't look at thyroid. We don't look to check if you're anemic. We don't look at prolactin. We don't look at cholesterol, insulin, glucose. That's all done in a blood test. But a blood test is also really nice though for the quick check. So let's say a woman says she's been going through treatment and she's like, I just want to know what my progesterone is. I just, you know, like, oh my gosh, I'm on day 19. I'm at the right day to go test. Can I just go get a blood draw to get my progesterone checked? Absolutely. Yes. Or maybe she says, Carrie, I just got pregnant. Like I have a positive pregnancy test. I'm like, go to the lab. Don't do a Dutch test. We need to check your progesterone and make sure your progesterone is at healthy levels. Same for testosterone. If we're doing work and treatment with her and I'm like, look, let's just see where you're at. It's a great snapshot. Let's go get your blood drawn, check your testosterone, check your DHEA, and see if we're on the right path. It's quick, it's easy, it's generally covered by insurance. But it's the initial visit or maybe like the six-month follow-up. That's when I'm using the Dutch test to get more quality, comprehensive information. And I think a lot of women have had their hormones checked and they're looking for more. Yeah, I got a lot more when I did the Dutch test. It was very very comprehensive. I tell women in my community frequently that if you haven't at least done it once, it's worth doing it once, if not once a year, but if you've never done it at least once, one time, because I learned so much about how my body works. And now I know what my baseline is. Whereas before I didn't really have markers for these baselines and if it's normal for my body or not. So I'm a big fan, obviously completely biased because I've done it several times and it's so valuable. But why do we still have women going into the doctor's office and they're doing these blood tests, hormone tests, and then they're told their hormones are completely normal and they're sent on their way. But we know they're not normal. They have complete symptoms, odd things happening. They know deep down that things are out of balance. How come that happens? I would say the one big thing that I see all the time is mistiming. So women will see their doctor on a Tuesday. They will ask for hormone testing and the doctor says, sure, go to the lab right now. Let's get your blood drawn. They get their hormones checked and they fall into range, but they'll bring it to me and I'll go, well, where were you? And they'll go, I don't know. It was Tuesday. Like, well, where were you in your cycle? And they're like, oh, I don't know, like day four, day 10. I'm like, oh, ideally we would check later in the second half of the cycle known as the luteal phase because that's when progesterone does her thing. That's when she really increases. So that's probably the number one thing I see that women get blown off as normal. The other thing that I see is that when you get your lab results, the ranges are generally quite wide. And so as long as you're in the range, there's no red flag by your name. There's no abnormal stamped and bold by your name. Most practitioners who are seeing patients every six to eight minutes don't have a lot of time to really study it. And they're like, oh, you're fine. You're fine. Nothing says abnormal. You look good. And you get sent on your way. And so I think the lack of time to really work with her and work with the lab results 
coupled with wrong time in your cycle for testing leads to, quote, you're normal, but you don't feel normal. I'm always educating women on this future aspect of women's health, where we're headed and what it might look like in the future. A lot of the problems with the current system does have to do with lack of training and lack of time. So a lot of doctors didn't even talk about nutrition. The woman's asking them, well, if I made dietary changes, would this make a difference? And they're saying, yeah, no, but that just means I didn't study it. And I have like five more minutes left before I have to see my next patient. So I'm always educating women that this is why they need to be their own advocate and really understand their own health, because it's really your job at this point. Like there isn't a lot of practitioners yet. I'm excited about the ones that are, and I'm always talking about them, but there isn't a lot yet that really can help bring all these pieces together. Mm -hmm. Real quick, I wanted to talk about the hormonal hierarchy because another thing I'm hearing all the time in the community, and I did hear on my own healing journey, was that the only hormones that matter are like estrogen and progesterone. That if estrogen and progesterone are fine, then everything's fine. But it's obviously more complex than that. And the Dutch test gives you more clear results on that. So can you talk a little bit about the hormonal hierarchy and what's the bigger picture here? Oh my gosh. Well, I'm sure everyone knows that all the glands that make hormones, they're all like best friends and they talk all day long. And I mean, everything from your thyroid gland making thyroid, your pancreas making insulin, your adrenal glands making cortisol and DHEA, DHEAS. And then of course your ovaries making estrogen and progesterone. And so if one of the glands is not doing well. Like picture your best friend group, right? Picture your best friend group and you're all going to contribute to something. You're all, you know, working on something that you're all responsible for bringing a potluck, food, right? Decorations, whatever it is. And one friend is just like, failing, like not doing their job, not bringing food, didn't help with decorations. And you have to pick up for their slack. It's very similar as an analogy in the body. If the thyroid is slowing down and not doing its job, then it's going to affect the ovaries. It's going to affect the adrenals. It's going to affect how you manage blood sugar and insulin. And so by taking a very narrow stance of looking just at estrogen and progesterone, man, you surely miss, as the saying goes, you miss you miss the whole forest through the trees. You're so hyper-focused on that one tree in front of you, and yet all the trees around you have to do with your hormones as well. And so that's why I tell women, when you get testing done, even if it's blood testing, you know, ask, try to ask for some of these extra, ask to have your thyroid checked, ask to have prolactin checked, ask to have your glucose and insulin checked. Because what I sometimes see, and you may see this too, is that a woman goes to her doctor and asks for comprehensive blood work and they'll get their cholesterol, they'll get red and white blood cells. We call it a comprehensive metabolic panel. So it's kidney, liver, glucose, And then they're like, you're totally normal. And I'm like, well, of course they're normal. Red and white blood cells aren't their problem. It's hormones. And so that's why we have to look broader. Those are really important metrics. And why is it that Dutch tests really spend so much time talking about cortisol and insulin, which are, those are two really big factors that I see specifically with women with endometriosis. They tend to struggle with these things. And that tends to be throwing off the cascade of everything else. Yet for some reason, doctors are still fixated on this end byproduct of the progesterone estrogen connection. And they're not looking at, you know, up the stream, so to speak. So cortisol is our stress hormone, but it also does so many other things. It's known as a glucocorticosteroid. That's the family it's in. Gluco, because glucose is its primary job. If cortisol had a resume, 
I manage your glucose would be its thing at the top of your resume. And so when you have cortisol issues, whether it's too low through the day, too high through the day, too high when it's not supposed to be, too low when it's not supposed to be, that will affect your glucose and that will affect your insulin. And so it just sets this domino cascade off that affects the rest of your hormones. It affects the way you manage inflammation. It affects the way you ovulate or not. It affects how you sleep or not. It affects your energy or not, your mood. And so just looking at cortisol and how cortisol functions in the day can really give you so much more information to help with your endometriosis and your hormone management. It's interesting because I also kind of bought in for a while to the bad rap that cortisol got. But actually, I found out that it's really doing a lot of functions in the body and it's very important. And that once you're hyper stressed to the point where, you know, you get into serious fatigue, which I did hit a pretty serious burnout point, my cortisol was like tanked, like it didn't even exist anymore, which is how come I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. (laughs) So I always tell women, we don't hate cortisol. It's the one that wakes you up in the morning goes, let's go get the day. If you can't get out of bed, there's something going on there and cortisol should be looked into. So anything about like some of the positive effects of cortisol and how it's helping the other hormones? Well, one of the big things is cortisol is anti-inflammatory to a point. And and cortisol can help reduce our autoimmune symptoms or autoimmune development. And so if we just look at inflammation, look how inflammatory endometriosis is. And so when cortisol rises in the morning, which is a normal rise, it's a normal response to get your butt out of bed, get you going, get your blood sugar moving, reduce inflammation, then that significantly helps helps through the rest of your day. And so that rise in the morning is called the cortisol awakening response, appropriately enough. And so for women who don't get that response, maybe they're blunted, maybe it's low, maybe it goes down instead of up, then they may wake up in pain. They may wake up with joint pain. They may wake up and say, gosh, my thyroid autoimmune symptoms are really bad today. Gosh, my headache is bad today partly because this cortisol isn't going up in the morning. Just like you said, it gets a really bad rap. People think cortisol and they're like, oh, that's what gives me belly fat. That puts the muffin top on. It can contribute, but man, it does so many other things. It's there to protect you. It's there to help you. It's there to give you energy. It's there to manage blood sugar. It's there to put out fires. And so we need to really help support our cortisol because it can affect the whole body from head to toe. What are a few quick tips on how to support it? My favorite is free and easy because I should say the rhythm is managed by something in your brain called the clock genes, like the clock on your wall. Your clock genes set your circadian rhythm for the day, and they are dictated set and reset by light and dark. So I tell people when you wake up in the morning, immediately, immediately get full spectrum light exposure. Open your window, open your door, go outside, go outside for 10-ish minutes, get real actual light, even on a gray day. It's totally gray and raining where I am right now, but enough light was coming through this morning that I opened my sliding door, let my dog out, and enjoyed the fact that I could get some light. At night, you want darkness, sleep in darkness. So get off your phones, get off your screens, You know, wind down at night, start to dim the lights. You don't need every single light on at night. Sleep in darkness in your bedroom. Because like I said, the clock genes set and reset by light and dark. And notice I didn't say certain herbs, right? Notice I didn't say supplements. Notice I didn't say intermittent fasting. What I said was light and dark. And so I find just doing those two things repeatedly, getting light in the morning, darkness at night can make a huge difference. And it fits right into the budget. (laughs) 
it's pretty affordable. Yes, it does. And it's interesting how that sounds so simple. But I know from personal experience of like testing my sleep and testing how I felt the next day and testing kind of just some different things for my own body. Most of my problem was I didn't go to bed on time and I was on my computer too late. Guilty. And then I wake (laughs) up feeling not so hot. And I have a mild clubhouse addiction lately, which is a problem because people are on late at night talking. And so I'm getting all revved up talking about important topics with people. And I love it. I think it's been a fun point of connection. But I've noticed myself get dysregulated again. And I could tell it started to affect me. So it was kind of an interesting litmus test of like, I was doing so good. And then I got so excited about being up late again. And then my quarters, I could tell it was taking a hit. I was like, okay, I need to get back to a normal schedule to bed before 11, up with the sun, get that light. And all of a sudden, my whole mental landscape changed. Huge, 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 huge. It's funny, the Clubhouse thing, because my notifications turned on as I'm continuing to learn Clubhouse. And when I see people like you and other friends, y'all will be on late at night. And it's the first thing I think. I'm like, you need to go to bed. (laughs) What's wrong with you? Yeah, we should go to bed. But it's like, there's some really interesting people and some really interesting topics happening. So it's hard to just cruise yourself and be like, okay, I'm just going to walk away and not be, you know, but, and it's hard to even say that. Okay, guys, that's really good. I love you all. Goodbye. Like, it's hard to hang up. Feels like when you were a teenager and you had your boyfriend on the phone and you're like, I got to go, you know, 20 minutes later, you're still on the phone. So anyway, I'm working on it. I'm working on my boundaries. So let's talk about the different forms of estrogen because a lot of women with endo, again, this is another one that gets rather demonized is well, estrogen is bad. I have a lot of pet peeves with endo, but one of my biggest pet peeves is that estrogen all of a sudden becomes the ultimate demon and women should like do everything to reduce their estrogen. I even in the beginning kind of did this myself and it turned into a problem. Like I tanked my estrogen, took a test and I had like barely any estrogen and that's not good. My brain wasn't working well. I wasn't creative like my normal self and all these problems happen because estrogen as women, like we need it. It's good for us. So can we dissect kind of how the Dutch helps us understand the different forms of estrogen and why not all forms of estrogen are bad, so to speak? Yeah. I mean, I want to definitely want to start off by saying that I understand when women say I hate estrogen. I get it. But at the same time, estrogen is good for our skin and it's good for our bones and it's good for our brain and it's good for our immune system, believe it or not. I mean, it's good for our heart. Estrogen is really a super important critical part of being a woman. It's just how she's made, when she's made, and then how she is cleared out of the body. So we have two main forms of estrogen. One is then, thankfully, they're numbered. So it's E1, which is estrone, and E2, which is estradiol. The E2 form, estradiol, is the most potent, the most potent. It's the one that binds to receptors, turns them on, does the things. I read recently E1's about 10% the potency of E2. And then those are the two that go through a lot of the detoxification that we see on the Dutch test. So you go through phase one detoxification, primarily in the liver. And when you go through phase one, the body turns you into a different form of estrogen. So you go from E2 or E1 into something else that's called a metabolite. And then that has to get neutralized and made water soluble so you can pee or poop it out. And then you go through phase two detoxification to do that. Once you're water soluble, you can get rid of it. So now you make sure you're hydrated, make sure you have a bowel movement every day, you know, make sure your microbiome and your gut health is good. That all helps with moving estrogen out. Back to the top, you have a third estrogen called estriol, which is E3. And unfortunately, Wikipedia calls it like a metabolic byproduct dead-end estrogen. I'm like, oh, that's so sad. 
estriol is so important in the body. It's, it can be really helpful for things like vaginal health, you know, vaginal lubrication, but it too goes through detoxification just a slightly different way and then gets cleared out of the body. And so by understanding these layers, we just follow the arrow and women can go, oh, I'm high here and low here. This must be where I'm stopped. Or, oh gosh, this arrow is leading somewhere that's high. There must be something going on pushing me this direction. Let's figure that out. And so it gives really good information back to you so we can use diet and lifestyle choices and even supplements and nutrients to help redirect some of these pathways. Again, the nuance of this is so understated in many contexts. So that's why I'm so excited we can kind of dissect this a little bit because again, it's all about the form of estrogen and if your body's doing a good job inactivating it or not. And a lot of that is completely diet and lifestyle mediated, right? Yeah. So I've been able to take, you know, things that were a harmful form of estrogen that I found and shift it to a positive form of estrogen by cleaning up my microbiome, by cleaning up the amount of products that I have contact with as far as xenoestrogens, chemicals, things like that. And all of a sudden, everything that I was told early on in my endo journey, like, oh, well, there's not a lot you can do. Actually, there was a lot I could do. And then had positive test results to prove it. It's like, well, I fixed the harmful forms of estrogen in my body without completely shutting down my brain from my ovaries and was able to learn really interesting lifestyle habits that I can use for the rest of my life. Yeah. I think that's phenomenal too, because I see it in my comments. I'm sure you see it in your comments where women, I had one woman who said, I cut out all vegetable oils and got rid of all the xenoestrogens. And she's like, I feel pretty normal. I feel like the pain and horrificness of the past is literally in the past. It's so much better. I've had other women say, I had candida. I had parasites. I had a very inflamed gut. I was eating foods that I probably shouldn't have been. And once I cleaned all that up, my endometriosis symptoms got so much better and so much manageable. Stress. I've had women say, gosh, you know, my it turns out I was born into a stressful situation. I lived a stressful situation and grew up in a stressful situation. And as I unpacked that and worked through that mental emotional piece, they said, gosh, my endometriosis improved. And so I totally agree with you. I think understanding and working through the diet and lifestyle can be life-changing, life-changing. But conventional medicine doesn't start there. They start with the birth control pill and then they go to, you know, injectables like Lupron. They suggest surgery. They talk about hysterectomy. And, and then women say, well, what if I started reading labels? And what if I switched to organic? What if I cut out vegetable oils? What if we looked at my progesterone? What if we looked at my microbiome? It's just like you said earlier, because that's not their expertise or training. And prescriptions are faster and easier and a, and a quick visit. That's what they lean on. And it's unfortunate for some women, for some women. And that's why I do what I do now is to try to raise awareness around how powerful these interventions are and really getting to the root causes. Because the other thing that's interesting about the idea that, well, estrogen is harmful and you need to just clear all the estrogens out of your body versus understanding that there's a harmful form of estrogen that actually does cause DNA breaks. And I am going to get a little nerdy here because I know my community can handle it. So I was on a call with Nicole Jardim and we talked about like what endo actually is. And endo is senescent zombie immune cells, right? They're, they're, they've turned, they've shifted and changed. They're no longer the endometrium and they have an immune component because we have the macrophages. We know from studies that they're in there. We know these cells have been basically shut down because the DNA in them is no longer normal. They're broken. And so one of those factors is harmful forms of estrogen, of which we know that isn't helpful if you have a high level of chemical and dioxin as well as pesticide exposure. Those things are all causing DNA breaks. 
you know, chronic stress causes DNA breaks. It's like if you start looking at the list of things that cause DNA breaks, it's no longer quote unquote woo woo that these lifestyle interventions work because you're actually helping your system avoid damaged DNA, which means you shouldn't have as many endometriosis cells because the body's actually properly cleaning and taking care of what it needs to to eliminate those cells when they find them. And right in the cell are the mitochondria, right? We all learned in school about the mitochondria, our cellular powerhouses, but our hormones, the first step of our hormone production, all of our hormones are in the mitochondria. And in that first step, when you start the creation from step zero to step one, you release a lot of what are known as reactive oxygen species. And basically, it's like little fires. These reactive oxygen species are little molecules that are naughty and they damage. <laughs> they light things on fire and they damage tissue and they, you know, affect the cell in a very in the DNA in a very negative way. And so it's like this catch-22. The endometriosis tissue is making estrogen. But the making of estrogen increases these naughty little molecules, and then that causes inflammation, and inflammation drives the production of more estrogen right there locally. Right there in the tissue, it becomes this naughty loop that continues, continues, continues. And so just like you said, by affecting diet, lifestyle, what you're exposed to, if we can lower our inflammation if we can get our immune system sort of under control or, you know, so it's not constantly putting out fires, if we make sure we have enough antioxidants, then it can be really helpful. We're reading labels on our products, on our hair, on our skin, our makeup, our cleaning, all candles. I agree with you. It completely moves from the woo-woo to there's a lot of research on this. Hard science. Yep. <laughs> and then my personal experiences, which count for something. I may be an N of one, but I know that I've done it for myself. So I know that it's possible for other people. Uh, you said something important. I want to pull that out. So another myth that happens still pretty frequently is that if we completely shut down women's hormones, the endo will not continue and it will, will not progress. And that's completely incorrect, specifically for the reason you just said, which is there's tons of studies and we know that the localized endometrium tissue, that endometriosis cell that's undergone changes, actually makes its own estrogens and will put out estrogens. That fact alone means that if we, even if we do shut down all other production, that that's not accurate, that endo lesions can actually create their own estrogens. So I just wanted to put that out there because there's women who are still put on these harsh suppressive drugs with the hopes that the endo tissue will go away. And it doesn't, it almost always persists. I wish it weren't true, but it, I hear it every single time. And it's because this localized tissue actually has its own programming, so to speak. For example, like the birth control pill only shuts down from the brain to the ovary. It's not going to shut down what's in that tissue, that endometriosis tissue. Even though women will say, I can't live without the birth control pill, or I can't live without the injection or what have you, it's not like you went to an estrogen of zero. It's not as high as it was before, don't get me wrong, but you don't go to zero. You will eke out some. And again, I wish it was true that the myth that, well, just make it to menopause, which I think it's kind of ridiculous that a doctor would ever tell a I woman of 20-something, which this happens every day, well, just hang in there till menopause. It's like, I'm 20-something. You know how many years that is from now? Not to mention that we didn't learn anything, which is my biggest complaint. It's like we didn't learn anything about the body in the process, which we should be to help her with her longevity. But even so, it's like you can't just hang out till menopause because even then, once you hit menopause, many women still have complications 
associations with endo because again, these cells put out their own estrogens and their own hormones. So it doesn't make sense to just like wait it out and hope that everything resolves. It's like something needs to be done. The body is having a problem for a reason. We need to do some investigation and find out what's going on. Absolutely. Sing it, sister. (laughs) Yeah. Just going to preach on that. No. (laughs) So yeah, that one's important to me. I wanted to ask you, this is more for me personally, but I love kind of playing with concepts because words are so important. So is estrogen dominance really a thing or are we really just talking about unopposed estrogens? Like people are still on this estrogen dominance kick. Is that a thing? What are your thoughts? So I struggle with it. It's an easy word. It's sexy. It makes sense when you say it. But I would agree with you. It's your progesterone is lower than your estrogen. So you don't have to be completely unopposed. You can be making progesterone. It's just not that great. So instead of making like a level 10, you only make a level five and estrogen's at a level 10. So right now there's a gap and it's only in the second half of your cycle. So I get when conventional doctors, maybe an OBGYN says, there's no such thing as estrogen dominance. That's ridiculous women's cycle. Like, no, I, I understand where you're coming from. What we mean is when estrogen should be high in the second half, in the luteal phase, and it's not, and estrogen is higher, then that's where the problem lies. But that's too much to say, right? Estrogen dominance is just, just <laughs> so much quicker. It's two words. Easier. It's easier. And we mean estrogen dominance during the second phase of yep. the cycle, right? That's what we mean. Yep. Absolutely. Because obviously estrogen is naturally high during follicular and yeah. And you may be unopposed. You may not ovulate at all. So there are women that might go, well, I actually don't ovulate. Okay, girl, you are unopposed. Absolutely. Whereas I, me, only because I know what my lab results are, my progesterone is at like a five. (laughs) It like wants to be, but it's not. And my estrogen is higher. And so I get higher estrogen related symptoms, but it's that spectrum that we talk about. And so then really technically estrogen dominance is a proper term. It's just, there's obviously a lot more explanation to what that means. And I think people get confused about what that means because again, our education around women's cycles is not so great in this oh, country. I know it's like, we have a lot of work to do there. So if we all kind of knew what we were even talking about in the first place, I swear I, I'm always educating women on just what their cycles should look like. And I actually don't mind if I just have to teach cycle mapping forever because it means women are empowered and understand what's normal. But it seems like that should be covered somewhere in a health class when we're younger to me that hasn't happened yet. And why? Why? We should get it at an early age. We should get it at puberty and like all the way through. And it's not embarrassing. It's our normal. It's what we are here for as women. I mean, whether you choose to get pregnant or not, that's not what I'm debating. I don't want to get pregnant, but I need to know about my cycle because my whole body runs around it. Every decision my body makes is around, am I safe enough and healthy enough to make a baby if I wanted to? I don't want to, but I don't have control over the way my brain is constantly scanning. So I know with my menstrual cycle that the symptoms and the way things are, are because of internal and external influences to keep me safe and healthy. My background's in psychology, and I think all of psychology actually needs to be renovated and updated because it's so funny how we think that mood swings, like all these weird things that are in the diagnostic manual actually aren't correct when you start overlaying them with biology. It's like, so a woman comes in and she's upset about something and you're like, oh, well, you're having you know, bipolar symptoms. Like, well, is she or is she having hormone problems? Like all of a sudden, now that I've learned this, my brain asks other questions about, well, there's so many facets to your mood and your stress levels and all that, that like, should we really be throwing around these diagnostic labels without doing some biological testing to see if things are normal? Because I notice that I'm way more creative and optimistic, which is normal during follicular phase. And I'm way more kind of like introverted and pensive and standoffish 
towards the latter end of my luteal phase. Well, once I learned about my hormones, that's completely normal. I no longer think I'm weird. I just understand that I'm in luteal phase. And I'm like luteal April, you know, and I'm just kind of like pensive and mysterious. And then when I'm in follicular phase, I'm like asking my girlfriends what we're doing and where are we going to dinner? You know, I want to go have fun. So that's a normal response. Yeah. So anyway, this is a really good one. So endo doesn't have a specific hormonal profile, right? Like I wish it did because it would make life easier. But technically speaking, just because you have a higher estrogen or an estrogen dominance issue doesn't mean that you have endo. And it also doesn't mean if you have endo that that's going to be your hormonal profile. So talk a little bit about that. And where are we with this? It's so unfortunate. I mean, that's like the next thing that I want in femtech to come out is somehow something to figure out endometriosis better than going in for symptoms and surgery to see if you have endometriosis. And so no, you're right. If somebody has higher estrogen compared to their progesterone, or if their estrogen and progesterone appear pretty normal for their cycle, you can't diagnose endometriosis off of that. And I do see that just like you do. I will see in the comments where women will go, I have endometriosis because my estrogen is high. And I'm like, ooh, nope, nope, that's not wasn't a diagnosis. I mean, yes, you may have endometriosis. And yes, your estrogen may be high. You can't diagnose based on that, unfortunately. It plays a role, but it's not a diagnostic. Someday, someday with a lot of money, I need a, I need a woman, right? I know. <laughs> Femtech, get on it. <laughs> I know. And I actually have ideas on what that might look like. There's definitely like indicators that we're not screening for. Like there's things, even if we couldn't call it a diagnostic tool, it could be something that aids diagnostics so that women don't have to wonder. I always talk to women about like, well, April, should I go get surgery? And I'm like, I understand this is a very huge leap. You have these problems, but we don't really have a whole lot of markers to talk about before. It's just like, well, just walk into the OR. Your brain doesn't like that and nor does your pocketbook. So it's a very hard thing to like ask a woman to go from zero to surgery for a diagnostic. So there are things that could be looked at. So anyway, we'll see if one day maybe I can get some funding and pull something together to help people understand it. But there's markers that if I was a doctor now, I would pull that would help you at least feel like the surgery is warranted. And they're not doing that. That's currently not a conversation that really is happening yet in most doctor's offices. So I'd love to at least upgrade that and then upgrade to maybe something even better that would help women look at that. So anyway, on that front, I would love to talk about what are some of the genetics that women tend to struggle with estrogen detox or converting those harmful forms of estrogen into the inactive forms that they can easily excrete from the body? What should they be aware of on that front? So in that phase one section, sometimes you will hear it if you're listening to somebody lecturing, they'll call it SIP, CYP450. And in that 450, there are specific ones that help estrogen detox. So CYP1A1 pushes you down the pathway. That's what we consider less carcinogenic. It's like the better pathway. Then CYP1B1, so B for bad, (laughs) that will push you down the more carcinogenic that could lead to those DNA breaks like you were talking about. CYP3A4 pushes you down a pathway of what we call proliferation. So it is good for bones, maybe not so great for breast tissue, maybe not so great for clots, maybe not so great for fibroids. When these are fast, if you're a woman, let's say you've done genomic testing and you have your results or you've gone through some sort of interpretation and you can look at these 1A1, 1B1, 3A4, and you can see if you're a fast person and that's why you're maybe favoring that pathway. Now to neutralize, to get through to, to phase two, we can look at a few different ones. We can look at what's called COMPT, which is C O. MT, 
COMPT or COMT. And COMPT is what takes those phase one estrogens and neutralizes them. COMP stands for catechol O-methyltransferase. Basically what it's doing, it's a transferer. So it's taking a methyl and transferring it onto that naughty little estrogen and it makes it neutral. And now that it's neutral, it can't cause damage. It doesn't bind. It can't do things. And so COMT is a big, big player. Another big player is called SALT, S-U-L-T, SALT, sulfates estrogen, which is another way to neutralize it. You have other genes called UGT. UGT puts something called a glucuronic acid on it, also neutralizes it. And so you can see just, I mean, that's just six that we've talked about that can play a role in the way that your body either neutralizes or turns off estrogen or like directs it down an appropriate pathway. Now, I get a question a lot around MTHFR. I have MTHFR. I have the dreaded disease known as MTHFR. Does that play a role in estrogen detox? And it's part of a cycle, but it's not the big player. And most women with the MTHFR variant still have functioning MTHFR, and it's enough that it's not the issue. It's the COMT that's the much bigger player. So that's the one I look at much heavier. And there's research around COMT and things like breast cancer in cells. And so that's why I like to look at that one especially. With the MTHFR, I guess I wonder if the way it plays in is more just your inability to detox environmental toxins and that type of thing as well. So when you are looking at COMT, just picture a big circle. And on the left-hand side of the circle is MTHFR or folate, as well as B12, methyl B12. At the top of the circle is called methionine. So to get from the bottom of the circle to the top of the circle, you have to go through the folate B12 part. And then on the right-hand side of the circle is your COMT. So to make the circle go round, you need the folate part. You need the MTHFR to make the 5-MTHFR with the B12. And that's what helps the cycle go round. So it's not so much a detox of environmental medicine. It's specifically the left-hand side of the circle to make the right-hand side, (laughs) the COMT. That makes sense. And so if your MTHFR isn't being supportive, then if you aren't getting enough folate and that's not moving the cycle, then you're, and you're having a little bit of an issue with your COMT, all of a sudden now you're kind of having some compounding issues, right? Would that make sense? Yep, absolutely. And what's interesting is the bottom of the circle is homocysteine. And some women may have heard of this before. Homocysteine can easily be checked in the blood. And so if your homocysteine is high, that's the circle I'm talking about. And so you maybe have never done DNA testing, but your doctor has done a homocysteine on you and said, oh, your homocysteine is kind of high. It's like, oh, your circle's not working. There's something wrong that you can't go round and round. And so that gives you a pretty good indicator that maybe your estrogen detox is also affected. That's so fascinating because I'm always talking about mast cell issues with Uh women with endo. And that's really like this this bottom end issue, right? But it's interesting because the high homeocysteine, if it's not cleared properly, also drives the immune system. And so that's not good because all of a sudden now you're having that and there's such an interplay between homeocysteine and estrogen from what I'm learning, correct? Yes. Uh, Maybe this wasn't one of my prepared questions, but I'd love to talk (laughs) about that because I do think that a lot of women with endo, this is their huge symptom is coming at this lower end of the circle. And they're like, wow, I can't tolerate anything with histamine in it. I can't even handle like, you know, it's spring right now and I have allergies. Like all of these are signs that these other parts of your system aren't working properly. And so it is an easy indicator without surgery to see like, well, what's going on there? Yeah, I would agree, especially because histamine, as you teach, it was inflammatory. I mean, part of our immune system as a signal 
that something's wrong and the body needs to take care of it, but it's also inflammatory. So a little bit of histamine, you know, fine. A lot of bit of histamine, especially when you have endo, can really, again, like spark the fires, those reactive oxygen species. It can really push the flames up and then women feel it. And so women probably say to you, my allergies are bad and my endo is bad. Like why, you know, why does it seem to be sometimes be temporal? Why is it like in the spring and the fall? And that histamine can be a big player. Yeah. And I've just learned from my own self, like in my cycle, if I eat too much, you know, high histamine type stuff during certain parts of the cycle, that it pushes me over the edge and that causes a little bit of an inflammatory problem. But I've kind of learned it's my own fault. So I have to kind of watch like what I'm eating near ovulation, because that's a naturally high kind of histamine time. It gets a little complex, but it's not all endo related. And it also kind of is, it's weird because women always kind of blame the symptoms on endo. I'm like, well, no, it's actually more of like your body's not working properly issue. And that may have led to the endo, but it's not the endo that's actually causing those problems. You might need a little more folate or you might need more magnesium or other things to support your COMT gene to work properly. So anyway, we're, I'm trying to also educate on that. I know that one's harder because your brain just doesn't think like it's that MTHFR and McComb-T not working together, but that's probably more of what's happening than the endo itself. So that's very nerdy, but I'm sure the community <laughs> will appreciate it. <laughs> We're winding down a ton. I can't believe this has gone by so fast. Let's talk a little bit about some of the supplements. So we just talked about COMT, MTHFR, that type of thing. And so what ends up happening is I educate on this stuff and I love that my community is proactive, but then they immediately go out and buy calcium decorcorate <laughs> and DIM and magnesium. And, and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like you can't just start taking all these things. You have to know why you're taking them and you have to take them at the appropriate time. So maybe you could just briefly walk us down like why you don't want to go out and just start supplementing yourself with these things. And you need to know what levels of detoxification that you need support in. So I will tell everyone my analogy, which is my analogy that I say all the time. Picture a clawfoot bathtub and it has to be a clawfoot because I'm extra. That's your estrogen detoxification in a clawfoot bathtub. The water coming into your bathtub, you can never turn off. You're always detoxing. So the water is your phase one. You can turn your water up, you can turn your water down, but you can't turn it off. That's phase one. Phase two is your drain. This is where the COMT, the COMT comes into play. Is your drain open and allows the water through? Is your drain clogged? Is your drain open but not open wide enough? Is it open partially? Then your sewer line that connects your clawfoot tub and moves it out of your house and gets the dirty water away, that's your intestines (laughs) or your kidneys. It's how you excrete all this estrogen. What shifts the water? This is where the DIM, methane or DIM, indole-3-carbonyl, I3C, they come from your broccoli, your kale, your cauliflower family, resveratrol, quercetin is also helpful. Those are the biggest shifters in phase one. Phase two, magnesium. It's the big cofactor for COMT. Most of the population is magnesium deficient. And so magnesium can be really helpful, but so can your methyl B vitamins, methyl B12, methyl B6, methylfolate. So can zinc, choline, like what's in egg yolks, glycine, specifically trimethylglycine, we call it TMG. Those all help the drain aspect. Notice nothing I have said overlaps. Then when we get into the intestines, that's when we get into the calcium deglucarate. Calcium deglucarate helps estrogen that's been tagged to be pooped out, stay in its box, so it can be sent out of the body. Again, calcium deglucarate helps with phase three. That's the sewer line out. But I didn't say one and I didn't say phase two. And so that's why women will, just like you said, they'll go, oh, I'll go buy everything. (laughs) Like, hold on, (laughs) hold on. Let's not break the budget. 
why don't we figure out which level you need the support and go for that? We teach it as phase one, two, three, water out the drain, out the sewer line. You should always address it as three, two, one. If you have a blocked sewer line, if you have constipation, if you have an unhealthy microbiome, focus on that first. Why would you focus on the water if your sewer line is blocked or broken? Then focus on the drain. Let's open it. Then focus on the water. It's also important to know that DIM and indole 3 carbonyl it lowers estrogen out of circulation. Somebody with endo, they may think, that's fine with me. I want lower estrogen. But if you already have lower estrogen and you drop it lower, you may start to get hot flashes, night sweats, vaginal dryness, brain fog, joint pain, dry skin. You can make yourself worse in other areas. Be very careful. Oh, you're just telling my story early on when I was sort of like playing with all my stuff. And I was like, estrogen's bad. They said it's bad. And so I, you know, I ate all my broccoli and I went for it. And it was like, I feel like garbage. And I felt like a menopausal woman. I was waking up with night sweats and I was having all these problems. And then I tested and it was like, you have very low estrogen levels. What is wrong with you? And it's like, I would just like, removed all my estrogens out of my system. So that was before I learned these nuances about the different forms and that we want them to convert properly and all of that. So anyway, that's why I always bring these topics up because I don't want women to do that if they can help it. I'd rather them to maybe learn responsibly how to detox the improper estrogens properly. And that's why I always start with the gut with women with endo. It's like, let's start with the gut and then we can work our way around to looking at how the hormones are responding after that sewer line is properly functioning. This has been so amazing. I have one last question for you. Yes. Which is what is the thing or things that you're most excited about right now? It could be femtech, anything that you think would be like an amazing innovation in women's healthcare that you're looking forward to. And then what is something that you think maybe could exist in like 2026? Well, I will say the thing I'm most looking forward to, believe it or not, it's not femtech. I've become obsessed lately with the mitochondria (laughs) because... As our little cellular powerhouses, I think the mitochondria don't get a lot of credit when it comes to hormones, when it comes to co- like cortisol, when it comes to inflammation, when it comes to aging. There's, they call it the mitochondrial theory of aging and how our damaged mitochondria is aging us. The more damage we have in the mitochondria, aging us faster, not only like our skin or physically, but even in our organs, you know, aging our ovaries faster. And so I've become obsessed in learning everything I can about the mitochondria and All the stuff we had to learn in biochemistry or chemistry is younger. And we thought, I'm never going to be a chemist. Why would I do that? And here I am, like learning it all over again, going deep, nerding out. And so my goal is to really help people understand the importance of the mitochondria, everything they do for the body, that they literally start the process for hormone production and they can be inflamed really easily. So let's support them. Let's love our mitochondria. That's what I'm pretty obsessed about. That's so amazing. And so with what we know of that, what do you think in 2026 is something kind of that sounds far-fetched, but that we could possibly have? So not mitochondrial related, but I think in 2026, we are going to have a lot more at-home self-directed testing. I think we're going to have a lot more windows into our health that all of these femtech biotech companies are going to go, you know what? I am tired of having to go through my practitioner and being told no, or that's not right. When I can take control of my health and I can at least get the testing, scan a QR code and get this information at home, it's still important you see your practitioner, but to be able to start the ball rolling and getting some of this information, and it's already starting to come out this year. 
let's put the power of data collection in your hands and empower you. And I'm excited for that. I really do think it's a bright future. That's why I started this podcast and I didn't call it something endo related is I'm actually more excited about how those tools and this future of medicine is going to help women now and forever in the future remove obstacles like endometriosis and those types of things and hopefully quicker than we've been able to before. Where can people find you? What's the best way for them to engage with your work? I hang out on Instagram at dr.carryjones. And everything I put on there is just educational with some funny stuff in between. All about hormones, all about cortisol. I know they're going to ask me, so I'm just going to answer this question right now. How do they find a practitioner who can help them with the Dutch test if they want to take that? On our website, we have a find a provider link, which is www.dutchtest.com. D-U-T-C-H, Dutch test. You can buy your own test. We strongly suggest you go through a provider or at least get a provider to go through the results with you. But again, if you want to empower yourself and order it yourself and then bring it to a provider, you can do that. Or you can find a provider and have them get your history and background and everything, and then they can order it for you. So dutchtest.com. Thank you so much, Dr. Carrie Jones. You're an absolute delight. Thank you for your work, what you're doing to educate the world about women's hormones. I just appreciate you so much. Future podcast was created and is hosted by April Summerford, executive podcast producer Mather DeLeon. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed in this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including April Summerford and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.